Welcome to Fleet Baptist Church. We hope you enjoy the latest in our teaching series. It's more important that you hear a little bit about Richmond and his past. You may remember, you've seen the video. Well, this is Richmond in the flesh. He's going to come and just share a few minutes before he'll then eventually bring the word. But we'll, Richmond, if I can ask you to come up. I think a round of applause, that'd be great. We will share this microphone. I'm going to make this really easy for you, Richmond. Um, first of all, um, we've already heard where you come from, Uganda. And I've been there a few times and it's, it's a wonderful place. But when I was at New Wine this week, you gave a three-minute elevator version yeah. of your life before and after yeah. Compassion. Yeah. That would be perfect. Yeah. How about the, the three-minute elevator version <laughs> here? And then uh, that will sort of move us into then talking about what it is you're doing now with your life and the Discipleship Network, etc. So, great. Well, good morning, everyone. I'm very excited to be here with my wife, Rosette. Um, so it's just, she brings a lot of hmm to me. <laughs> I was the third born of six children. But when I was eight, I saw my father murdered in the presence of my mom. On that single day, it appeared like I'd lost both parents, my father physically, but my mother, emotionally, psychologically, she was never the same. By the time I was nine, we had been thrown out of the house and into one of the worst slums in Uganda called Naguru. I felt like my world had shattered. By the time I was 10, I had gotten sick of malaria over 15 times, many times coming to near death. But God sent help through a 15-year-old girl called Heather. She made a decision to take a babysitting job in order to sponsor this young African boy, and that boy was me. By the time I was 14, I had made a decision to follow Christ. By the time I was 19, all five of my brothers and sisters and my mother had come to know the Lord Jesus. And by the time I was 24... I had taken over as pastor of the very church I joined as a compassion child. Today, I'm leading a pastor's discipleship network of pastors who are desperately needing training. And my work is to bring hope through training to them. And all this happened because one 15-year-old did one act that changed my life completely. One of the things which uh, I have the privilege of doing most Sunday mornings is, is talking about compassion. And, and actually, I see Richmond most Sunday mornings because that is such a powerful video. That five-minute video that encapsulates his life before and his life after. But one of the other important things about compassion is that one-to-one -one relationship between the sponsor, in your case, Heather, uh, and, 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 and Richmond. And 
I just want to encourage you, there are 32 children being sponsored from folks here in Fleet Baptist Church, and I want to thank you for every single one of them. Yeah, give yourself a round of applause. That's great. But for those 32, I would just love to encourage you. Um, can you tell us, Richmond, letters from your sponsor? How important were they? How impactful were they to your life as you were growing up as a compassion sponsored child? I believe that many people know poverty in part. If you ask most people what poverty is, describe poverty. Many people would use physical descriptors, like poverty is the lack of warm clothes, it's a lack of food, it's a lack of water, it's a lack of the roof over your head. And that's only a small part of poverty. The real monster that we in Uganda, and me as a child who grew up in Islam, when you say poverty, I don't just see the lack of clothes or the lack of food. Poverty is like a voice. It comes to you and says you are nothing. You don't matter. You're unloved. You're not worth loving. And, and those voices, as they constantly come at you, a time comes, I've seen many children throw in the towel and give up and take a rod and they never come back from that rod because a voice came to them. It's the other side of poverty that's seldom talked about. And money can do nothing to break that poverty. It is things such as words, things such as presence, things such as the, the words that I received from my sponsor, Heather, saying, Richmond, I love you. Ah, I love to hear that. Richmond, I love you. Richmond, I'm praying for you. Richmond, how are you doing that best friend of yours? Someone to know me and to care for me pushes back this narrative that I had believed that I am nothing, unknown, unwanted, forgotten. And I believe that that's where letters play the greatest role. And I want to encourage somebody here. Sometimes you think, this is only a six-year-old. How will my letters make a difference in this six-year-old's life? I want to share with you that I received letters that I kept reading. And strange, at the age of eight, I read that letter... And it meant one thing. I read this same letter three years later, and I'm like, ah, oh, <laughs> I didn't see this. This is what she meant. And then as you go and grow on with the letters, they make all the difference. And so if God lays it on your heart to write it, don't think the child is too young. Just write it as God says it to you, because that will come out at its own time and season to make a difference. Yeah, lovely. Thank you, Richmond. Just one last question. Um, you mentioned briefly there about the African Discipleship Network. Yeah. Um, it would be great just for a, a moment just to explain a little bit what that is. Having been there, having seen the facilities that, you, that God is blessing you with and that you're looking to bless the whole of, of East Africa with, really. Um, how many pastors are there in Uganda? How many have been trained? What's God's vision that he's placed on you for, for that um, a network. Like many pastors in Uganda, I began ministry without any training whatsoever. Pastor Peter saw that I loved the Word of God. He saw that I was hungry for the Word of God. 
But the other thing he saw is that I loved people. I loved people deeply. I loved my brothers and I loved my sisters. I loved those that were under my care. So Pastor Peter said that those two things were characteristic of a pastor, a shepherd willing to lay down his life for others. And so he invited me to become a pastor. And for a moment, I wasn't sure because I was a trained accountant. And I thought, let me make as much money as possible and support the ministry. And then Pastor Peter kept whispering. It's just it's one of those things I could not escape. And uh, I said, when he got a call to become the general secretary of the Baptist Union of Uganda, he asked the elders to pray. And they came to me and said, Richmond, God over and over is laying your name on, my, on our minds. And so they invited me and Rosette to take over leadership of the church. And here I was as a pastor serving without any training whatsoever. And I had passion and I had zeal and I had love. But after a while, I realized those were insufficient. I was thrown into a very complicated death. Uh, one lady in our community lost her three-year-old ch three child. And I was invited as a pastor to provide the vigil. And I went there with my choir, and we sang, and then time came for me to speak. And I stood there speaking, trying to remember what I've had said on other vigils, and telling people, we will see this child again. And this lady is looking at me directly in my eyes, and I can see she's getting more angry the more I talk. And I couldn't escape her face, so I slow down and wind down my talk. And I went around. To, in Africa, we have a tendency of putting your hands around the person who's just lost their loved one, and you press in to say to them, Tulinawi, we are with you. You're not alone. And this lady, this is uncultural. She pulled away from me and asked me one question. What has a three-year-old child done to God. And uh, knowing that the child had died from malaria, I knew where she was coming from. And at that point, my mind blanked. I couldn't think of a verse. I couldn't think of a word. I, it was probably the most embarrassing time of my life. And so I remember stepping away from that and calling Pastor Peter. I said, Pastor Peter, you should have been here. Because this is too much. It's too embarrassing. I don't know how to pastor. And so I had stepped away from ministry for a while until a gentleman called Steve Wilson came to me and said, Richmond, what's the problem? Why are you no longer in the ministry? I said, I, I, I'm happy with accounting. I'll go do accounting. Uh, this, this is too much. I don't know. And so he made a way for me to go to Moody Bible Institute and do a master's degree in spiritual formation and discipleship. And it was at that point that my eyes, I mean, you could see my eyes in class as they were talking about theology and the Bible and understanding and the spirit. And my eyes just became bigger as I continued to learn. And I realized I was learning so much that over 99% of pastors in my country did not know. And I decided that to whom much is given, much is also required. And I took what I learned and ran with it back to my country. And I said, pastors, if you're happy to learn, let's learn together. And so that formed the Pastors Discipleship Network. What began 10 years ago as a small movement in Kampala City has now swept across four countries. Right now we have 6,000 pastors that are part of this network. And daily we're studying the word of God to learn how to steward our call. And to God alone be the glory. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, this is your morning. You make every minute of this day.
This is the day the Lord has made. And we will rejoice and be glad in it. No matter how else our home is going and what's going on in our lives and in our workplaces and in our health, whatever is going on in our relationships, whatever is going on, Father, we give it to you. We ask that, Father, today you will grant peace. You will grant the deep sense of your presence. Because in the presence of God, there is fullness of joy. And at his right hand, there are pleasures forevermore. So, Father, I pray, help us see that in touching the poor, we ourselves are touched. Lord, speak to us and pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Let me tell you briefly about Rosette. I think Rosette is one of the few uh, ladies here who has been proposed to twice on the same day. <laughs> I, uh, I, I came to, to Rosette and proposed, and uh, she said yes. And I don't know why, in my mind, uh, I, I gathered, I just did not hear yes from her, so I proposed again. <laughs> and she said yes the second time, and then I, it settled, it finally clicked uh, that she said yes. Uh, but I'm very, very privileged to be married to you, Rosette. Um, guys, I must say, Rosette means everything to me right now. And I want to just uh, um, honor her and thank her uh, for her support and for her presence in my life. Um, Rosette also was um, a, a compassion child uh, as a child. Uh, her father died when she was one. She actually hadn't quite made one years old, uh, one year old, but, but she was a child. She didn't ever see her father's face. Um, so her mother struggled uh, to raise her up. And, and at, when, at, at a point when her mother was most desperate, compassion stepped in and her mother was devastated. But then um, as Rosette picked up in school at the age of six and went on to seven and eight and nine, at the age of 11, the mother found a job. When the mother found a job and seeing all the other children that were desperate, the mother came to compassion and said, I can now pay the school fees and feed my child. Uh, I would hate for another child to miss this opportunity when Rosette is in. And so uh, compassion was, was delighted to hear that. And so Rosette was removed from the program and another child took her place. And, and so uh, here we are. Uh, but when we were thinking about this message, Rosette and I were comparing notes and, and praying about uh, this message together. So my message comes from uh, reflections on God's word, but also reflections from both of us as we thought through our compassion experience. I already told you about uh, how my life changed dramatically by the loss of one man. But we're also grateful that because of the death of one man over 2,000 years ago, there is hope. Amen. And this is the hope that I want to emphasize uh, even now. Um, I don't want to labor this point because you're friends of compassion. Uh, oftentimes, if there's a church that does not know compassion or a church that's struggling to trust a ministry, because I believe many people want to do good. Many people want to make a difference, but they do not know how and they do not know who to trust. But you have found how and you have found who to trust, compassion. And so I will not labor the point of trying to explain who compassion is or compassion's distinctives uh, as a ministry. But I want to emphasize here again because a reminder is always good for the heart. Compassion sponsorship works. 
I mean, look at me. It works. But in the Bible, we see that helping the poor is a double mission. What do I mean by that? I mean that it's in the Bible through, you'll see that whenever Jesus calls a person, he's always calling them for a kingdom agenda, to fill a kingdom gap. And while that person goes about making a difference, they themselves are changed. In the Bible, we see this double mission, this double-edged nature of generosity, of giving, that in giving, we ourselves are transformed. In sharing and stepping in into the dark places, we ourselves are transformed. That it's more blessed to give than to receive. There is a doctrine, there's a theology there that a person that God uses is changed himself or herself. It's a picture of following Jesus into the broken places. Think about it. In giving to the poor, following like, like Heather, this 15-year-old, sponsoring this boy in Naguru Slam, learning about Naguru Slam, learning about the population of Naguru Slams, learning about the water crisis in Naguru Slam, learning about the mosquitoes and, and all the diarrhea, the diphtheria, all, all the diseases that were there, or that were attacking. Every time I was in hospital, some of those numbers came to my sponsor. And as she pressed in, she knew more about Uganda than many of her friends. It's a picture of following Jesus into the broken places. Seeing as Jesus would have us see. Learning from how the master loves and serves the poor. Being challenged to go deeper. To encounter God. To be stretched in every way. To find meaning, purpose, and task in this world that God has planted us. As we follow Jesus into these dark places, into the broken places, we ourselves are transformed. So I'm hoping that today I want to spend time helping us find our place and our role in this redemption story of both man and creation. That in doing this, in following Jesus into these places, we find our purpose. We find who we are. Everything finally comes together. It makes sense. It's not just releasing a child from poverty. As much as that is great, it has a great impact on us as well. See, we often reflect on how touching the poor changes the child. But today I want to reflect on how touching the poor changes you. In order to do so, let's open our Bibles to the book of Matthew, the ninth chapter. Matthew chapter 9, from verses 9 through 13. We're going to read a story of the obedience of one of the disciples. And his name is Matthew. So Matthew chapter 9, from verses uh, 9 through 13. Matthew 9, verses 9 through 13. I'm going to read from the New International Version. This is what the Bible says. That as Jesus went from there, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at the tax collector's booth. Follow me, he told him. And Matthew got up and followed him. And while Jesus was having dinner at Matthew's house, Many tax collectors and sinners came and ate with him and his disciples. 
And when the Pharisees saw this, they asked his disciples, Why does your teacher eat among tax collectors and sinners? On hearing this, Jesus said, It's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. But go and learn what it means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. For I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. Let's take a moment and think about what just happened there. We can only imagine what Jesus saw in Matthew before he called him. When we speak about intentionality, if we ask on this row, who is probably the most intentional person? Who is the most intentional person you know in all of history? If they ask, somebody asked you, that, could you make a list in your mind, if you close your eyes and look back several years or all the books you have read and make a list of the most intentional people? And then you pick the three that are on top of that list. And then you pick the one that's on top of that list. I think you and I will quickly agree that there's not a person more intentional in every word and every action in the use of all his resources than Jesus Christ, which is the Lord. So you can imagine what Jesus saw in Matthew. What did Jesus see in Matthew? And he walked up to him and said just a few words, follow me. And the Bible says, Matthew got up and followed him. I want to talk briefly about obedience and how this relates to purpose and how finally this relates to a child in poverty. When Matthew obeyed, and I think obedience is the number one step of love that a follower can show unto Christ. The Bible says that he who obeys me is the one who loves me. In another part, he says, if you love me, you will obey my commands. Christ has a love language. And that love language is obedience. He says, you can say, everyone, Lord, Lord. You can go on the mountain hall and scream, Lord, Lord, on the mountain, in the valley, on the plains. Lord, Lord, I love you. But not all who say, Lord, Lord, will enter his kingdom. Christ has a clear way of understanding that you are actually following hard after him. And we see a simple word. Follow me. And Jesus fell deeper in love with Matthew. Because the Bible says Matthew got up and followed. Now I don't want to read through this too fast. Because we have to slow down and paint the picture right. So Matthew is a tax collector seated at a city gate with the responsibilities, with people that are authority over him. This is a person who has a job to do. This is a person, however, in the days, tax collectors were also banded as thieves and categorized as betrayers because you find in the ancient time that tax collectors were serving 
a superior authority. Rome had taken charge. And so here we are. People are praying in, in, in ancient Israel this prayer. This Redeemer, when He comes, He will free us from this oppression. And now there are these tax collectors who have given in to serve that authority. So in many ways, they're categorized as betrayers, as those who are serving the apples, those who have turned their back on them. And, and he's there. And so there's all this context going on, and he has a lot to think about before he can follow Christ. But when Jesus says, follow me, just, just picture that with me. He looks at the books. He looks at the money he's so far raised. Looks at the list of his dreams, what he was planning to do. If he had his plan here, the Bible says he got up and followed. Obedience is so powerful. If you study almost all of Jesus' miracles, there was a small element of obedience. Think about him turning water into wine. It wasn't just, you want wine? Okay, begin pouring. No. Get water. Fill those with water. This is an act of obedience that was required. Fish, the feeding of those, bring what you have now. Distribute it this way. Now collect that is left. There is always an act of obedience that is required. For everyone that has the calling of God upon their lives, there is obedience that is required. But I think sometimes I, 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 I feel like as we thank God for reason and for logic and for all these things that the West has especially been blessed with, sometimes we reason ourselves out of obedience. We want to have everything in order. We have everything tight. I know the Greek and the Hebrew of this particular word. I understand it. It's a simple thing. Obey. And what we see here is Matthew simply getting up and obeying. Everyone who has been called by God has been challenged with step number one, which is obedience. Abraham received his call and he was tested in obedience. Nehemiah received his call and was tested in obedience. Most of the callings that we see described in the Bible follow with an obedience test. And sometimes, could it be, friends, that we are held back from some of what God's calling us to touch because of the small little things God's calling us to obey in that then communicate that we are in him. I'll give you an example of some of the small little things. The Bible says in Proverbs 31 and verses 8 that speak up for those who cannot speak for themselves. The Bible is replete with verse after verse after verse that reveals God's heart for the poor. Verse after verse after verse. God's heart for the poor. Hear the words of God. Speak up for those who cannot speak for themselves. For the rights of all who are destitute. Speak and you judges, judge fairly. Defend the poor and the needy. Whoever oppresses the poor shows contempt to their maker. But whoever is kind to the needy honors God. Whoever is kind to the poor lends to God. 
and he will reward them for what they have done. The generous will themselves be blessed, for they share their food with the poor. Those who give to the poor will lack nothing, but those who close their eyes to them will receive a curse. The Lord is a refuge for the oppressed and a stronghold for the poor in times of trouble. Because the poor are plundered and the needy grown, I will now arise, says the Lord, and I will protect them, those who malign them. Learn to do right, seek justice, and defend the oppressed. I mean, I could go on and on and on. I was just, I'd listed here like a ton of scriptures that just show God's heart where you can't hide from it. God, when you say, what are you passionate about? Think about it. From the time he left heaven and landed on earth, where was he? Where did he choose to be born? Where did he spend most of his time to the point that the Pharisees couldn't take it any longer? They said, come out of them. And he said, I'm doing just fine here. Just fine. You, you can't escape it wherever you turn in the pages. It's a simple thing that God calls us. So um, we, we're praying for that day, and I'm part of Prayer Force Africa, and we're interceding because we see it, that when we remember the poor, God's heart is touched. So we're crying out to God that there will be an outcry, there will be people who say enough is enough. People who are willing to take a step of courage and stand for the poor. Because in so doing, they themselves are transformed. But you see, not all poverty is created equal. Poverty has different faces. Different types of poverty. There is physical poverty, there is emotional poverty, there is spiritual poverty, there's all types of poverty that we find later on as we read the text that Matthew slowly and slowly was released. He thought he had made it all. He thought he was a tax collector. He was great and all of that. But later on we see him changing and realizing there's actually greater riches than what he thought he had. We see Matthew finding that actually it was in Christ that he was most fulfilled. Later on we see him penning the text and, and I could go on and on about that. But, but our God is talking to us about what happens when we obey. When we obey, you see later on, uh, we see Jesus sitting among tax collectors. If you read uh, the next portion with me from verses uh, While Jesus was having dinner, I mean, I'm in verse 10 here. While Jesus was having dinner at Matthew's house, okay, many tax collectors and sinners came and ate with him and his disciples. Think about it. One act of obedience created that very evening a dinner and Immediately, many of Matthew's tax collectors and friends had a chance to sit at the table with Jesus and hear the good news of the gospel. 
And I, I think about what obedience does. You see, my sponsor Heather was a 15-year-old who chose to obey God. Everyone thinks 15-year-old teenagers are kids. There's a parent who came and told me, my, I only have a 15-year-old. I'm like, that's the 15-year-old that changed my life. And 15-year-olds and will always stand up to whatever you think they are. So if you say you're such a kid, go off there and goof off and, and be whoever, uh, just go and play over there some video games. They, they will do that. But if you look at a 15-year-old and say, stand up straight. Good morning, sir. Something about that changes everything about that 15-year-old. You set the standard and the bar. I don't know who set the high standard and the bar for Heather. And she decided that even though her fellow 15-year-olds cannot, don't have the money to do this, that she will take a babysitting job in order to follow through on her obedience. I don't know who did that, but am I glad? Am I glad? Because the cost of waiting is too great. And Heather, in doing so, she felt a new kind of freedom as she exchanged letters back and forth with me. The Lord used that one act of obedience to release freedom into my home. The amount of dancing that filled our home, the rejoicing, is beyond description. And so here, Matthew is with, because of one act of obedience, all these tax collectors are gathered now at the table. Guess what? In the presence of the living God. And have you ever paused or thought, I've been thinking about this a lot with my wife, how when we follow God in the small things, the ripples are huge. Huge, massive. Sometimes we believe in God for our children and our grandchildren to walk with him. And it's in these small things of obedience. Let me also talk briefly about how Matthew changed and took the opposite direction from his own life and his own culture at the time. I believe that here in this country, more than I think our country, you have a real challenge in keeping faith in an ever-changing culture. Yesterday I was just reading about John Storm, one of the pastors who has just abandoned his faith. And my wife and I were praying for him. He's just written an arc, a whole article saying, kissing Christianity goodbye. And he's made it all public. And, and, and I began to, to think... The battle here to keep faith in an ever-changing culture is so deep and so real. While in our culture, God is a given. So you, you don't have to labor very hard to convince people that there is a God. No, we, we start from a place of there is a God, but which God is the true God? That's where we start from. But a lot... In your culture now is you have to labor 
And so there's a generation that's rising where theology and rhetoric and Christian dogma doesn't, is not enough, is not persuasive enough to keep them in. They need to come face to face with the world. They need to find out how does this book interact with their Monday and Tuesday and Wednesday and their everyday life. That's, that's what needs to be given to this next generation. They're looking for authenticity. They're looking for reality. They're looking, does this God interact with my world today? And I think that there's no better way than seeing that manifested in acts of obedience. I know that Heather, my sponsor, now she is 43 years old. Uh, her child, her child knows that there is a God. We, we, we write all kinds of things to her children. And, and, and if for any reason the child should doubt, there is all this evidence, this, this interaction. But whenever the next generation is kept away from interacting, they have a small view of the world. A very small view. And then it becomes upon you to convince them daily that God is. That he's active. St. John wrote this whole thesis on the dark night of the soul. Where people begin to encounter dryness. Whenever they pray, it feels like they're crying out of a dry place. Like, God, where are you? I don't feel you. I don't... They're in that place. And when you have an entire generation lasting in the place where they don't see God actually making a difference, then we encounter the time when we realize some things might have been lost. But keeping faith in an ever-changing culture requires you and I to think on the question of obedience. Because if we walk daily and all around these young people, there's testament of obedience and God working and stories of transformation then it keeps them alive. It's part of that vehicle that keeps them alive. But if every time we're saying, you want another video game? Okay, that's the next video game. So that, that's the next thing. Yes, they might be smiling, but inside of their heart, they're dying. But if you say, we're going to live unless that the world might change. We want to change the world of this child and another child. Some of you are at a place where you can sponsor two children and currently you're sponsoring one. And that one is being set free. But you and I know that with one other child, it would mean a level of sacrifice for yourself. Which sacrifice can then be seen in other ways as a reward. Because your family begins to figure out how are we living on less so that someone else can live with more. It seems like it's a very simple thing of obedience, but it's directly within the heart of God. And so, Matthew's action here gets me and Rosette very excited. As we think about obedience, I was saved because of obedience. One 15-year-old in the midst of a culture that says you are so young, decided no. I'll take a babysitting job and bring hope to this boy. And there she was. As I come towards the close here, I want to drive home some three things. I hope we have seen 
that child sponsorship is an avenue for missions. Is an avenue for missions. And it's not the kind of mission that's over there and you're over here. But there is a conduit. There is that which interacts and allows you to see what's going on and they to see what's going on in your own life. So child sponsorship is an avenue for missions. But more than that, I hope you have seen that child sponsorship is Christ's freedom train for both the child and the sponsor. You both board. The child is free from physical poverty and the pains and carrying a weight beyond their years. But you are too freed in all kinds of the other poverty that the Lord sees that only he can take away. So as we walk in obedience, this freedom train becomes God's train and message to us for freedom. I also, you have also seen that God simply asks us to obey. Just obey the small things. It may not even make sense to you. And that's why in this culture, it's extremely hard to drive home a thing that in someone's mind does not make sense. The, the, a message on faith is extremely hard. It's extremely hard. While for us back home in Uganda, sometimes that's all we have. I'll tell you just one last story that I, that before I close here. So my mom had six children. And we had one room. And those of you who have watched the video have seen that room. One room. And there was a boy called Arthur who was thrown out of his house. His father had died of HIV AIDS. The mother had gone to the countryside and failed to get the money to come back. So Arthur is now thrown out of the house. He's out there. My mother walks to him and said, Arthur, what's going on? It's 8 p.m. and it seems like there's a padlock on your door. He said, um, um, Mom is not here, and uh, I'll figure out what to do. My mom was like, no, no, Arthur, please come and stay with us. I remember coming back into the room and found Arthur there. I was like, Arthur, you visited until late today. <laughs> and Arthur just kept quiet and looked at my mom. And my mom said to us, <laughs> we've got a new brother. We looked around, it's one room. So we'll figure it out. And indeed, we figured it out. Today, Arthur is my associate pastor. Arthur came to know the Lord. Sometimes we reason ourselves out of obedience. We want it all make sense. We don't leave room for faith. I want to control this. I want to be in charge of it. And God says, let go of the wheels. Let me take charge. Do an act of faith and see how I come through that. Today, Arthur is alive. My associate pastor, more gifted than I am in every way. My wife told me this, and I'm just. <laughs> My wife said to me that um, the church grows 
when I'm not around. <laughs> and, um, but I, I can't, I can't escape Arthur. I can't. In every sense of the word, there was no room for one more. No room for one more. And my mother, she saw that there was always room. And so I, I'm going to ask you now, is there room for one more? Could you make room for faith and follow Christ into poverty? See what he's showing you. Get stretched. Allow yourself to be stretched. We have such a short life in this world. We can't afford to hang on to mist and flowers and the things that are here today and gone. We can maximize ourselves for the kingdom.